Hello, is this Christopher Joseph Heidel? It is Christopher Jude Heidel. Joseph is not here. <laughs> I guess we'll take you. We'll you. take you. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> On your podcast. <laughs> it's ours. It's for everyone. Wait, so hold on. With that, um, this is a funny conversation we'll have before we start. Do you see the number of people who are trying to infringe upon us now? So there's a uh, there's a marketmeditations.com yeah. site that is a porn site. Um, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then there's a is it any good meal? <laughs> no, no. Did you check for quality? No, <laughs> no, it's not. It's like a blog porn site. Um, oh, yes. I, I guess entry number eight is uh, about uh, the best place to buy your anal beads. Welcome to another episode of Market Meditations, where... Chris Heidel and myself, Neil Modi, are your host in becoming um, better uh, humans, hopefully making us better investors, where we talk about the market, interview guests on fun things like psilocybin and data today. Um, our guest today will be Kethan Patel. Kethan, welcome to the show. So, Chris, I know you wanted to talk to Kethan um, when I started telling you about him, maybe years ago even. Um, but I want to add a little color for who Kethan is to our audience. Um, Kethan is uh, originally an ER doc. And Kethan, if I butcher some of this, (laughs) just go ahead and go with it. Um, (laughs) So Kethan's originally an ER doc. uh, He did some ER services. And then he decided to start an integrative wellness practice, um, which included everything from Ayurvedic to Chinese medicine to Western medicine. Uh, seeing just a ton of patients a day. Funny enough, at one point I asked him something about Ayurvedic medicine, and we're both Indian. And he said, I don't know, I hadn't tried it. And I was like, wait, your practice offers it. And he's like, yep, I just try and give the best care pathways to the best people, um, to match them with people, the best care pathways with the right people. And I found that really fascinating. He was really just interested in matching people with what was the best. And it seemed a little like a data problem. Then, um, he uh, decided that that was too much. And so uh, he decided instead to start an AI company with a group of folks. And they now do all of the billing for a top five insurance company. Um, and uh, when he's not doing that, um, you know, he's an advisor to uh, OPEC on, you know, how to, you know, monopolize the world's oil. No, no just kidding on the last part. Um, <laughs> he, he's building other interesting, like, tools for doctors to interact with patients more efficiently in EMRs. And while that sounds maybe really boring, electronic medical records, it's actually not, um, surprisingly. And um, he's a, uh, I don't know how to use all of these terms, Kevin, so you're going to have to correct me. Um, oh, psychonaut? He's a, um, psychonaut. Conscious explorer. Psychonaut. Yeah, which doesn't mean he's psycho. It, he's um, the Magellan of the mind. He's actually he's building taking, a bunch of... Yeah. He's a Magellan. Like that, like that <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, he's building tools around measuring uh, the best uses for um, 
uh, marijuana and for uh, mushrooms or psilocybin, uh, cannabis, I guess, and psilocybin as well. So, um, you know, he's just got this wide variety of interests. His, his wife is an artist as well. Um, uh, you know, last little piece of disclosure, he's been an advisor to Zoic. He was the first one. I, you know, at that point, I couldn't understand why he agreed, but he's been helpful to me in my entire journey. Um, and we made an investment in a company right. called BioRosa as a result of his introduction um, in the autism space, uh, something we followed for a very long time before we did anything. And so, you know, it is with a lot of pleasure that, uh, you know, today we're going to talk a little bit about Kevin's career, um, a little bit about data and a bunch about uh, being a psychonaut. Um, in Thank the you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, Happy Thursday. Kevin, welcome to mm -hmm. the show. Great to have you. Yeah, yeah. So, wow, you've had quite a, a varied journey. Um, how, how, what sort of, I don't even know where to begin, right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know where to begin. And it's funny when we talk about journeys, because I think I, I'm actually landing right back in the starting point around high school. So I, I think this, this, this whole circuit through med school and stuff has really actually taken me back to my first loves. And I, I, can, I can totally get into that and unpack that a little, but that's, that's pretty much what I'm, I think uh, I'm doing right now. I took uh, Shore Goju, a Japanese style of karate, when I was a teenager. And we had this visiting professor, and he had a very thick white belt. And they had the same idea that you get so advanced that you're, again, like a beginner's mind. Mm -hmm. The oh, black absolutely. belt, the highest, the seventh degree black belt was actually a white belt, like a beginner again. Anyway, oh, <laughs> it was what that reminded me of, but... Catherine, you really need to make your wife listen to this. She'll appreciate even more the way we view you, it seems like. I'll get there. I'm working yeah. on it. So Kevin, how did you make the, the circle? Unpack that yeah. idea. For you know, yeah, I was, I was thinking about that, you know, actually earlier today. I was like, you know, this podcast is probably going to ask me about my origins and the story. And, you know, I, I think really the idea is, you know, you know the classic story. Immigrants come to Canada. Um, my my mm -hmm. dad was a chemist. He was a serial small business owner, and kind of mm -hmm. threw me into that milieu. You know, at a mm -hmm. really early age. But I, I think when I was in high school, the the things that I just really gravitated towards, um, you know, had to either do with one of two things. It was either technology, hardware, software, all that good stuff, gaming, and on the other side, it was like you know, the human mind, like lucid dreaming, mystical experiences, like this, this heavy, uh, you know, overlay of religious uh, experiences that people have had or documented over time. And that just like totally fascinated me. And so, you know, my, I had this guy kind of dual love, you know, kind of affair with those two things. So on, on the one hand, I was, you know, building PCs and selling them on IRC chats and billboard mm -hmm. services. And, you know, back mm -hmm. in the days when you, there was no Amazon and there was no, uh, you know, oh, online, wow. uh, you know, selling marketplaces. Yeah. But, you know, I was doing that on the one hand, there was something really fascinating about this sort of digital brain, this, this thing that could, you know, kind of, you know, quote unquote, think and do mm -hmm. uh, stuff faster. But on the other side, I loved, you know, this very biologic, you know, organic brain that we had in our heads and could allow you to do, you know, these really wild and wonderful things uh, in, in a meditative experience or while you were dreaming. And and I think at some point, you know, I just had, had to choose a career path. And, and I said, OK, well, I like the brain. I like health, uh, you know, maybe neurosurgery, maybe, you know, being a doctor, that, that might be interesting. So started exploring um some of the medical uh, clinics and services in our, in our city at that time. 
whether they'd be okay or up to having a volunteer. And one of, one of the first things that got me through the door is the fact that I knew something about computers. So uh, all of a sudden, the, the neurosurgery department uh, took me on as a volunteer slash, you know, junior researcher and, and, and threw a bunch of projects at me. And, you know, basically, I took care of their computer systems as pay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it was kind of cool because I got a really good firsthand look at the real brain. Uh, I mean, I was actually mm-hmm. able to get, um, you know, uh, dressed up, suited up and, and, and brought right into the OR um, uh, as a high school kid. So I, I, I was able to see, uh, you know, from a distance, obviously, but I could see the brain, you know, exposed in all its glory. Mm-hmm. And it was just really fascinating to me. So that that really kind of sealed the deal, like. Health, healthcare, medicine was it. Like I was applying to med school, and um, you know that's where I ended up. But and, and even through med school, I, I was really still fascinated with the brain. I, I did research in brain tumors, and you know really kind of explored all that um, neuroscience side of uh, of um, you know that sort of that journey, that path. And and it really really wasn't until uh, probably almost my third year of med school when my parents' um, business, I you know aspirations kind of caught up with them. They they went bankrupt. Uh, kind of everything fell through. Uh, suddenly, this like idea that I might spend you know the next six, seven, or up to possibly even ten years in in uh, residency and uh, you know trying to secure a PhD, which at the time was actually quite necessary if you're you know planning to have a, an academic career, uh, suddenly changed, and I had to kind of choose an alternate path, something hopefully quicker, and you know led me to a you know income and being able to work a little quicker than than a decade. So. I said, well, I, I love the ER. I love the fast pace nature of that environment. I did some rotations just to make sure I, I you know, it still resonated and, and I found myself kind of gravitating towards that. But what happened along the way is, you know, you, you find a career, you, I enjoyed it. I loved doing, um, you know, the trauma work and the ER uh, type of cases. What, what was really interesting was the humanity that you see in the emergency room. I saw so many patients with drug addictions. I saw so many people who were, you know, overdosed, uh, on, on the brink of death, just unconscious, uh, you know, semi-conscious or drug seeking, you, know, you see the entire other side of it, which is, you know, the doctor shopping, the people trying to pull a fast one on you and get a quick script for something so they can sell it down the street. And you see this whole range of humanity. And, and I got inspired, you know, as I was starting to do more and more work in the ER to start exploring um, more, you know, of a kind of a community-based practice in, in chronic pain addiction and in addiction care. So my, in my, my focus on integrative wellness was really around that population, this population that was in pain, that was, um, you know, misusing um, substances and needed help getting off of them. And, and I think that ability to get into that kind of work actually really opened my eyes um, to this whole other side of medicine, which was, uh, you know, healing oneself, taking measures and steps towards, um, um, you know, first of all, healing some of these internal traumas that you come with, uh, finding, um, you know, better harmony with your family situation, uh, trying to get off these substances, maybe, maybe making healthier choices and, and all the while needing somebody, um, along the way to, you know, to give you a substitute, take, take away the opioid, and substitute it for some counseling, substitute it for, mm-hmm. um, you know, acupuncture. And then again, to that point about, you know, uh, you know, Western or, um, sorry, Eastern, Eastern therapies. I mean, we were using, um, you know, acupuncture around the ear to to stop withdrawal, uh, you know, for some of these mm-hmm. patients with opioid. Mm-hmm. So it was this, this really cool transition where, you know, you're in this fast paced environment of the ER, 
dabbling on the side with with this kind of wellness center and then that kind of explodes and that became kind of really this huge passion of mine but all along the way i mean tech technology was really cool and I, I was kind of missing it i mean i was so involved with computing and software and all this other stuff that i kind of felt that that was you know now missing in my life and and i felt that this population that i was seeing was also uh really hard to um uh, you know, get, really get the full story out of uh, out of a patient in a thirty minute or one hour encounter. There was so much more information that we could get from uh, from this population. So, um, you know, I started thinking about well, is there ways that you know the patient can interact with a digital platform to get some information out of their minds and into a format that you know my whole team can look at. And so, mm -hmm. I really got fascinated with this idea that. You know, electronic medical records are kind of just this, you know, dumb terminal, if you will. And in healthcare, they they essentially allow you to put your your data into them. They're not very intelligent, they're not very dynamic. They don't really interact with you. But if we can make them to be a little more interactive, similar to the way a nurse or a physician speaks to a patient, then we might be able to have you know a really rich um, sort of gathering of information, which then ultimately helps the team, um, you know, better serve those those patients. So, uh, yeah, the journey kind of started in ER. It ended up in sort of integrated wellness, saw, saw lots of patients and, you know, it was really busy work. But um, all along the way, it was really interesting because we were starting to also learn ways to interact with, with clients and patients uh, to sort of get, um, you know, those richer stories from them and then also use that information, that data to, to drive better care. So, uh, you know, did that for probably about 13 years uh, on the front lines and, and really found myself burning out, loving tech, but burning out of, of clinical practice and um, started thinking, well, there's got to be easier ways to do all of this work and uh, mm -hmm. ultimately started just exploring, you know, people who are, you know, way smarter in the tech world and, and seeing what they had to say about uh, things like this and mm -hmm. technologies like this. And uh, kind of found myself in California at Singularity University back in 2013. Uh, you know, took a one-week mm -hmm. course, which was like uh, Ted Met on acid. And uh, <laughs> you're, 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 you're in a class of like 60, you know, high-achieving, keener types, investors, physicians, you know, mm -hmm. tech nuts. And, and we're all trying to sit there and, and really come up with ideas on the future of healthcare and the future of medicine. And uh, but you're used to drinking from a fire hose being in the oh, ER. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it was, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, novelty seeking behavior, right? I mean, that's, that's mm -hmm. kind of like what ER guys are like. I mean, and I know you guys have mentioned this before on other podcasts, right? I mean, uh, so some of the other folks, Zoic, come from the ER background and there's a ton of innovation happening in sure. ER. So many entrepreneurs do. Yeah. It's really a fascinating cross section. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Kenton, when you were in the ER and you went to integrated wellness, there must have been a difference in that pace, right? Um, it was. It was, a, it was a different pace in that you had time to explore the dimensions of a person that you really didn't have, you know, in those few minutes uh, in an ER encounter. So you have, um, you know, a lot of times a person comes in with their, their loved one. They come, they come with mm -hmm. their family members. You're collecting history and and these stories about you know whatever's ailing them at the time, whether it's an addiction problem or uh, you know chronic illness or chronic pain, and mm -hmm. uh, you start to really understand the the sort of spiral of mm -hmm. effects it has on other members of the family, has you know effects it has on their finances, and I think it was just waking up right to that story uh, in the ER. You really you you have to keep mind you know be mindful of all those things, but you really get 
you know, sort of focused in. You don't have the time. Right, to. right. You've got an immediate crisis in the ER. To right. Address. Yeah. Right. Did, I mean, and did the, I mean, was this what uh, sort of these stories and this kind of deeper and more meaningful interaction expose the kind of weakness in the way we capture, you know, with EMR, medical records and things like that? Or did you just feel there was a shortcoming there that you could address? It was. And so if you look at the interaction typically in healthcare with a patient and a provider, it's it's a conversation. And Usually it goes like this: somebody's saying something, the patient's saying something, and the provider's cl- you know clicking away rapidly, trying to put all of this into the electronic medical record, and spends most of the time in that encounter really gathering data and, and becoming like the world's most you know highly paid data entry clerks. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, John John Milne says that yeah. to me, right? I, I get paid for, for, for not for, for sending patients, but for yeah, filling absolutely. Out charts. And, then, yeah. and then you you spend you know a, a big part of that that encounter. Um, you know, trying to fulfill documentation uh, because it's necessary for reimbursement. It's necessary for, uh, you know, for a medical legal, um, you know, process. I mean, you have to have a copy of, of your interventions, your choice, the choices you made, you know, the supporting information for them. So you spend all this energy and time trying to get this information, but you lose sight of the, the person who's sitting in front of you trying to communicate yeah. to you all the things that are going on. Well, he, he was saying he still loses sight of some, or like that ER docs in general lose sight of some of it, even with scribes next to them, right? So the, the tool's still not effective, even when you've got somebody like taking notes rapidly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And, that, and that's like just, you know, storytelling and, and, and sometimes mm-hmm. you go off on tangents, right? So, and so, yeah, so we, we thought, okay, we, we could we could address this. We can address this in the sense that, you know, we, we've got a lot of these patients coming in and, and they're really like big black box stories, right? There's there's childhood traumas in there. There's there's all sorts of psychosocial issues that are going on in, in this person's life. There's, you know, financial ruin. There there may be other, you know, scenarios that are sort of happening on a, on a social level or relation level with other people. And we're trying to capture all of this. And yet we're, we, we have these like really rich stories at the end. And now it's like the next team member who comes on the scene has to look at all of that from scratch. And if I now mm-hmm. have to communicate this to somebody else in the team or, you know, I'll refer them out to somebody else. I mean, it's, it's, it's literally like you're, you're just passing stories over and over again. And the mm-hmm. data is all unstructured. It's all very much just blocks and blobs of text. And on the flip side, EMR systems that are these electronic medical record systems are trying to say, okay, well, we, we, can, we can make notes more structured. But then the flip side is that you end up having to do a lot of clicking. So you, you, you're seeing now physicians going home and spending two, three hours a night uh, literally rebuilding notes, um, you know, to put into their medical system mm. record. So you know, we, we haven't really solved it. And so, our, you know, our, our thesis was, well, why don't we look at the person in the room who has a lot of time, a lot of motivation, and, and really is the one with the best storytelling, and that's the patient, and they can put their note together themselves. And yeah. so we built a system that, you know, really addresses this kind of back end and front end kind of problem. So we, you know, we start building this kind of automation system that allows you to, you know, ask questions the way a physician asks. And if you answer a certain way, it goes down a different path. And then it goes down a different path if you, you know, the, if the last three questions you asked were, you know, scored a certain way. So we, we kind of built a system that really addresses that. But we still had another major problem that was not fixed or hasn't been solved, which is the, the last person that that patient had seen. Uh, or the last, you know, um, provider that cared for them has now sent me, you know, a record that has maybe, you know, 150 pages in it and I still have to mm-hmm. read it. So, mm-hmm. you know, there was this other problem, right, which is, okay, how about all this historical data? It's great if you can solve this current problem, like pro- pro- proactively from this moment forward, but how about all this historical information? 
So mm -hmm. it was still this like really big set of question marks that were in the air. I had a, an army of nurses who were literally, you know, sitting there getting these yeah, cases off the fax line and were reading these things, you know, line by line and highlighting and then taking a piece of data and typing it into a computer terminal. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, I, I, I've wow. automated through, you know, I, I basically automated by spending more money. Wait, <laughs> so, wait, pa pause for a moment. Like, the, I also understood that you saw 80 patients. Yeah, in our center, we, we had, because we were multidisciplinary, we had, uh, you know, probably around. No, did you personally? Personally, I, I would no, see probably around, yeah, but uh, no, no, probably no more than about 100, but, you know, it's anywhere between 70 to 100 patients. <laughs> And some in of them were like, a day? Second. yeah, in, in a day. Yeah. In a day. Wow. <laughs> but, but the patient's experience in my clinic could span over an hour, right, with, with different members of the team. So we had a team-based approach where I had set it up so that, you know, I, I really got involved for the thing that you required the MD to do. But we had addiction counselors. We had, you know, pain management uh, educators. We had nurses. So, you know, again, the, the patient's experience experience in our clinic was probably about an hour of FaceTime with a human being, but they were different human beings in that, mm -hmm. in that hour. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what, so what I essentially did was I kind of just took the, so, you know, the, that sort of supply chain of, 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 of talent and, and, and knowledge and say, okay, where, where do we get involved when we need to get involved? And, uh, you know, my role. So if I, I, I wondered if some of that actually led you the pattern recognition of seeing so many patients for so many years on a daily basis, even if it's just for minutes to verify what it is you think based on what they've told you um, or to diagnose maybe might be the better word. Um, there's got to be a better way, right? Like, you know, half these diagnostics, uh, half the diagnoses yeah. I'm making could be made if I just had them fill information. Is that, was that kind of the genesis of saying, hey, I've got to start to use AI to do some of this. I've got to start to build better programs. Well, I, wish I, I wish I could have um, chatted with you at that time. You just succinctly put the whole thing together. Like, that's exactly what it was, right? I mean, for, for us, it was we, we would see all these patients coming through. You're talking talk like, you know, 70 to a, up to 100 patients in a day. Lots of similar stories, lots of common points. There, there are patterns. Mm -hmm. And what we were seeing is the, the patterns of misuse and misprescription, like the, the sort of you know, poorly prescribed um, uh, treatment plans that we're, we're having um, being applied to these patients and they're coming to see us. And, and now they have, uh, you know, way more opioid that they can ever handle or, or we're starting to see people who had gone the other way and they're becoming highly tolerant to their meds. So now they're chasing, mm. you know, having these things on the street. So, and, and part of the story was when you looked at their pain descriptions on their notes from five, six years ago, you know, the key words were there that actually pointed you away from the use of opioids. So that was kind of the, the whole idea. If, if we could analyze these records that were, you know, kind of inbound and we could look for those key words, um, you know, without having a bunch of humans have to do this. But if I could automate it, then I could essentially, you know, triage um, the charts and, 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 and find the ones that had like sort of higher risk elements in them and find the ones that looked a little more, you know, a little more straightforward. And maybe all they needed was some physical therapy. And that was really the cold goal. I mean, the goal was to um, be able to look for patterns and then apply some of those models uh, proactively. Got it. So that's super helpful background. When did you start applying? I mean, maybe we should use some music real quick. You know, as we're transitioning to talk about being a psychonaut. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've never. I don't think I've ever used that. No, uh, yeah, yeah. You've got a whole bag of tools there, Neil. Um, you're keeping secret. <laughs> um, when did you start transitioning into using some of the data to help 
your experiences um, with CBD and right. um, psilocybin and, you know, really trying to lay out care pathways even for things that I didn't know had care pathways, right? right? Yeah, um, so that, that's an interesting one because for me, I, I was very naive. And how did you explain that to your very conservative Indian wife? I mean, let's, let's just go through the entire sequence <laughs> he he looking for uh, yeah. he's, he's looking for help there. <laughs> well, she's a pharmacist, and she actually was a pharmacist in our, our, in our model. <laughs> so um, so she, she saw the same patient population. And she she was very much indoctrinated in what was going on with with, with patients, what kind of meds they were abusing. They they were you know hitting her team up for for things. I mean, everybody smartens up, right? You see this crowd, and you start to really realize it's you know it's not bad people. It's just bad you know they're they're, they're good people in bad situations doing what they need to do to sort of keep out of getting withdrawal or, or you know um, going into massive amounts of uh, you know of, of pain perception. So the the thing for us was um, one of the things we did in our clinic because we did a lot of work around the addiction sort of substance abuse space is we we actually did a lot of toxicology work. We, we were testing these folks uh, with respect to their compliance on our, our 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 models or our prescriptions, but we would also see the other kinds of things that they would use. And what I noticed was, and, and we probably had one of the largest data sets when it came to what people in chronic pain clinics were actually using for real and what they didn't tell you they were using, but they actually were using because we would test them for it. Um, was cannabis. About a third of my patients, um, even when they reported that they didn't use anything else, were still using cannabis. Sorry, Sorry I'm going to ask really dumb questions. Cannabis, marijuana, again, I feel dumb talking about this. This is like the psychonaut question. Mm. Um, I, I guess I know, you know what CBD oil is or cream because I got to use some when I broke my foot, but I don't always know the distinction when you're talking about them. When you're saying patients were using yeah. it, I don't actually know what you're saying. Were they smoking weed? They were smoking weed. Or were they were they... smoking weed. They were using, okay. you know, an oil or they were, you know, using oh, an edible. Oh, yeah. Words. I mean, okay. people have been using this for hundreds of years, right? So, or thousands mm-hmm. of years, I should say. Thousands, thousands, thousands of years. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, they're going to do what they're going to do, right? So, again, mm-hmm. it helps with chronic pain. It helps with anxiety. It helps with sleep. These are the things that are totally, you know, dysregulated when, you're, when you have chronic pain. And so from... From these patients in our clinic, um, you know, finding out that a third of them are using this kind of leads you to start asking some questions like, why are you using this and, and what is it doing for you? And, um, you know, so kind of exploring that naturally mm-hmm. with with my patients leads to uh, ultimately, you know, bringing this into the fold of, of our of our practice. And, and, and we were in Canada, so we, we had federally a medical marijuana program that was, you know, already in place. You could apply to have uh, your patients um, you know, obtain uh, marijuana or, or cannabis um, from from a government, uh, you know, because sort of stock stock uh, pile. So you you could have them purchasing it, you know, legally mm-hmm. um, at a dose that you could prescribe for them. So it was you know really an easy thing for us in Canada. Um, but the issue was, you know, you had a lot of people who were stigmatized by their by their providers, by their family physicians, or by their other specialists. Mm-hmm. So we ended up very rapidly. Uh, getting a lot of patients coming in and saying, look, you know, I, you saw my other friend here who has chronic pain and he was on a bunch of, you know, morphine or Oxycontin. Uh, he's off all of those things now. He's, he's literally just using, you know, um, some cannabis. Is that something you guys, you know, you could do for us? And so we would see that story play over and over again. It made us, you know, even busier, right? right? So <laughs> we weren't looking for business at this point. Yeah, Kenton did that. So um, 
I guess it became clear to you just in the very real hands-on day-to-day process. Hey, Chris, you're Chris, you're a little garbled. Am so I garbled? I'm trying you? not to be. I am enunciating very <laughs> clearly. <I'm trying. laughs> I, uh, but I was going to say, I guess really it was your very practical experience that um, got you to see these folks were using um, THC. They were using cannabis, smoking marijuana, ganja, right. <laughs> in order to, to ease the pain of withdrawal or how did you – uh, you know, put the uses together? Were they treating depression? Or was it just kind of all of these things and you were able to sort of sort through and figure out what the... Right. You know, it, it was all things. So you, you, you're treating pain, like somatic or bodily pain. You're treating, mm-hmm. um, you know, anxiety disorders. You're treating mm-hmm. uh, sleep loss. And, mm-hmm. and again, when you correct two or three of those parameters in, in one person, it's like you see a lot of other things improve, right? Their energy mm-hmm. levels go they're not sleeping during the day. They suddenly feel like they can go start exercising or moving. So you, you started to see like in, in those clients who are starting to, you know, who are using non-medicinal, um, uh, you know, therapies, like you, things you weren't prescribing and all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're getting better. And, and you have this large, uh, you know, population of patients who are really stuck on the pharmaceuticals, not getting any better. They're kind of stuck. Mm-hmm. You know, naturally, you're going to gravitate towards towards some of those kinds of uh, some therapies. So we, we really were able to get that option on the table we saw it successfully be used you know people were, were coming off of opioids they were uh you know managing to um you know get off the pharmaceuticals get off of uh, some of those you know high doses and, and bring them down into a point where they're mm-hmm. they're more functional they're able to go to work they, they're able to you know sort of you know be human again and so to me to me that's like you know eye-opening right we're, we're, we're seeing a compound created by nature you know millions of years in evolution get it gets to this point and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's regulated. It's, you know, it's behind, uh, let's say a legal firewall. Um, we right. want to bring it to the fore. Right. And, and so that, that's an easy story. I mean, cannabis in Canada was an easier story. Uh, it, it's, it has since gone recreational, you know, not that long mm-hmm. ago, but the idea is now, you know, everybody has access to it and it's, it's been interesting to see. And, and now we're on this sort of cusp of this next wave of plant medicines coming, mm-hmm. which again, we're, we're at the beginning of a similar type of wave. And that's kind of, you know, this, movement towards psychedelics has, has been really interesting in, in healthcare. Well, and I don't know that a lot of people would know either, but, you know, they have passed, uh, you know, the FDA has approved use of some psychedelics with some psychological treatments now. In trials, right. So, and, and we're getting close. In trials. Yeah. So, you know, this is, this is huge, right? I mean, we're seeing um, breakthrough status being given to MDMA or ecstasy. Um, for the purposes of PTSD. And, and we're seeing uh, in trials, you know, people who have had treatment-resistant PTSD, and we're talking, you know, war veterans, people who've, who've suffered some pretty horrendous traumas, uh, physical, emotional, you know, torture, that kind of thing. I mean, the, within a couple of doses, um, you know, being off of their other medications or being free of those intrusive dreams and thoughts and experiences, it's, it's pretty profound. And, and so this has been really interesting to see these things that were, they've been around for potentially, you know, uh, decades for some of the synthetics and for some of the naturals. I mean, you know, psilocybin, there's, there's records going back three, 4,000 years that there's evidence that you know, people were using mushrooms for, for healing. And, and, and not only people, Kevin, but uh, some animals too, right? They found uh, in, in some uh, records that, you know, even deer and some other animals will find or forage for the mushroom. Oh, they will. 
Right. I mean, there's this there's this uh, this long hell theory, and I'm sure it's it's it's, it's going to continue to be that way. But the stone ape theory, the stone ape theory says that you know the the ability for our early ancestors to have developed language and creative thought may have been linked to their consumption of mushrooms, you know, in, as they foraged. Mm. So mm-hmm. uh, again, right? It, it's it's this whole idea. You, you consume something, perhaps it shows you. Um, you know, something abstract or, or even very concrete in, in your visual space that makes you think a different way. And so it's it's been pretty interesting to see how, you know, very rapidly within a few years, we're, we're getting to a point now where, you know, we're already at phase three um, trials that are going to be approved. And, you know, that it's very, very quick after that to get to a point where we have a clinical indication to use something like psilocybin uh, by, a, by a family physician for their patient. I, I think don't think that far off. And... Um... Kevin, can you help me think about this? They were what? Schedule two before under schedule F- one. Schedule one, schedule one. Oh. amount of uh, you know criminality kind of attached to that schedule, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. I mean, the, the, the assumption or the, the the label that we were given was you know this is highly addictive and has no medical use, and yet we don't see addiction with these compounds, and we're seeing medical you know breakthroughs happening. So. You know, there was a whole political reason back in the 60s, the counterculture, the sort of or the hippie counterculture movement that they wanted to sort of squash. They scheduled these products, took them off the market, you know, took mm-hmm. them away from therapeutic uses. But, you know, they're not, you know, 50, 60 years later, we're, we're finally getting a chance to uh, sort of bring them back out. And we're seeing some very rapid uh, developments going on. Well, that's great. So it's interesting. Yeah. I started to follow the space after I met Roland Griffith, the lead researcher in psilocybin, yeah. the first person who was actually approved to do trials, um, trials by the FDA uh, at John Hopkins. I met him at TED Med and had a chance to spend an hour with him at the airport oh, <laughs> in Palm Springs. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I felt really lucky. Right. And he was one of the most patient, uh, kind human beings I'd met. And, you know, kind of explaining his research yet again for, you know, probably the 20,000th time with lots of, you know, empathy and care to share it. So I kept listening to him, kept reading the rest of the research. And it was like fascinating then to hear that you were doing all of these things, um, I guess, both in technology, trying to make it easier and in, in actual personal use and to see some of the changes in evolution. Some of the conversations we've had over the last couple of months have been really illuminating do you mind kind of taking us through some of the psilocybin journey is that too personal or is that okay no i'm I'm actually very happy to share i mean for me um you know without getting too deep into it i mean i i have had a number of childhood traumas i mean i never put a label on it but Mm. i have come to realize through therapy myself um you know that i i went through childhood traumas and it, you know, being on the chair or on the couch for, you know, two years working with a really great therapist, we were hitting walls. We're just not getting anywhere. I think my analytical mind always kicks in, kind of wants to sort of, you know, wrap itself around the problem and, you know, find solutions that are really not. I can't imagine that happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let me solve this. Let me solve my own problem, right? It's that, that classic right. Right. mind gets in the way. You, get, you have to get it out of your own way kind of thing. And, um, I'm not sure. I don't even remember, in fact, how I even tripped across, and I use that word, right? But I tripped across the idea of a psychedelic being used therapeutically. It was probably something in the media, the mainstream media. And uh, I brought it up during one of the sessions, like, hey, what do you think about this? And my therapist is just, you know, 
eyes just went, you know, completely wide open. And it was almost like I had said the, 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 the special word, the magic word or something. And you know, <laughs> she pointed me at a whole bunch of different, you know, books to read. And I kind of just went rolled deep into it and sort of, you know, of course, when Michael Pollan's book had come out on the scene. And of course, mm-hmm. that was getting a lot of press. And, how, know, to, how to change your mind. For how to change your mind. How to change your mind. Which is just a great starting point for anybody who's, who's looking to explore this, right? So it, it was a combination of, I think, hitting a wall with, you know, kind of traditional talk therapy um, and being the kind of person I am. I, you know, just not sort of getting past that analytical side and, and then exploring this through, you know, reading and then getting to a point where you're like, look, I can read 20 more books on this, but if I don't experience it, mm. uh, you know, that there's a yearning, right, to sort of try this now. I've read enough read enough about all these, you know, folks having these really profound moving experiences. So found, you know, um, I, I'll admit an underground therapist who was willing to, um, you know, sort of trip sit me and, and sort of be there and kind of, you know, prepare me and learn about my journey before the actual uh, experience. And mm-hmm. we used psilocybin. So we used um, three grams uh, for my first trip, which is a pretty good dose. Some people, you know, you will use one gram and some people will use four or five grams on their first trip. But, you know, three grams was what was we kind of decided. And, and again, it's all just kind of, you know, uh, back of napkin kind of thing, right? You just kind of try to figure out what might be a, a reasonable place to start. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, the, the, it, it, was a, it was a great environment. It was you know, it's all about mind, uh, your mindset and your setting. So it's what you're going into it, the intentions you set for yourself, the reason you're actually even there on that, uh, you know, on that day is very important. You have to really kind of, you know, put yourself in that frame, uh, frame of mind. And then the setting has to be, you know, um, safe. It has to be with a person that you trust. And, and, and so this, this individual who's gotten to know me, you know, was, will, was willing to sort of do my, uh, my first trip with me and, and sort of, you know, walk me through it kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. um, it's very hard to describe. I mean, it's it's uh, one of the aspects of a, of, a, of a psychedelic trip is that it's ineffable. It's very difficult to use words to describe what you see. But to be able to, in a process of therapy, immediately get to a point where you no longer have an analytical mind trying to get in the way and try to make sense of things and just feel something that, you know, was, was part of my childhood and, and, and just the catharsis and the, the explosion of just emotions that comes out of that was really profound. It was very much... Um, you know, it's just like a light year of, of therapy, um, mm. in terms of just, you know, distance covered. So, um, to me, that was like, okay, now this is real. Cause I've now experienced it. it I can read about it. I, I finally experienced it, but it wasn't just an experience. I didn't just see, you know, ge- geometries and swirling lights. Like everybody thinks they're just going to see like nothing but, but for mm-hmm. me, it was, you know, the textural, uh, the visual scapes were amazing. The, the sounds were amazing. Your heightened sensations were amazing. But then being able to go inwards on that journey and hit that point of of that trauma and and kind of resolve it or or get comfortable with it, um, that was real. And when I when I when I felt that and in the weeks and months after that, there was always like a residual improvement that sort of comes about. And, and there's a lot of st- therapy still to be done after you're you're through a trip. So for me, that was solution. This is this is the thing I'd really love to sort of see more of, right? And, and, and get it yeah. mind. So. Yeah, Keaton, but uh, Keaton, you mentioned a great thing. I think one of the most remarkable things about that journey is how it stayed with you. Even, of course, the the long tail after the effects of the drug itself have worn off. How um, was that like? You talked about catharsis. Did that feeling um, of some resolution or something you'd experienced really stay with you for a while? 
after the trip itself? It has, and it has continued to stay. So for me, uh, the moment that you're in the trip and you have that content that comes up and you interact with it, that's the really cool part. It's interactive. Mm-hmm. And you're you're interacting um, with this content, you know, emotionally, uh, mentally, uh, you know, spiritually. You're, you're feeling something. When 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 the trip is done, and, I, and I'm apparently I'm a rapid metabolizer. I, I was done my trip in like two hours, and, and for most people it's like four or five hours. But for me, it was a really rapid kind of on and off. Uh, mm-hmm. But but once it's done, you you have this. You are changed. I mean, and we we've seen this. We, we've actually analyzed people before and after, and and. One of the, the, the metrics of their personality that changes is their level of openness, their level mm-hmm. to accept new things um, or be, you know, um, comfortable with novelty. And that's that state where, you know, a really great therapist who works with you after your trip, it helps you get through the, it's what's called integration, right? You're, you're getting through this integrating of the content and, and making it about, you know, how you resolve some of these things and, or how you sort of fixate that new information or learning into your you're being in, you know, how do you kind of move forward from it uh, with, with that new stuff in your mind? So it continues to go. I mean, we, we say integration is, is a lifelong process. It's not just a couple of weeks after, you know, a trip. It's, it's, it's lifelong. And it's interesting to see Roland Griffith's data on this. 90% or more mm-hmm. of the people who actually go through uh, the program, which includes two weeks of intensive therapy, two sessions uh, or three sessions of receiving psilocybin where essentially you just go to sleep and you've got headphones listening to um, easy music and then two more weeks of intensive therapy um, 90% of those people had major effect lasting for more than five years mm-hmm. also said that it was as profound as the birth of a child the first child or the death of a parent mm-hmm. wow. um, yeah, they... so to, to kind of hear that data really makes you sit up Right. And, and listen, that was the reason I started kind of doing my own research on it and wondering like, hey, how does that make sense? How is that possible? Yeah, it's a it's a profound um, experience and it's it's typically ranked as a top five of, of your life. Right. I mean, it, it, it's right up there. It it, it leaves you changed. I mean, it, you have a, a very visceral experience from from what happens. But it's it's this idea that now now you have this content that now has surfaced and you can interact with it, um, you know, mm. afterwards when you discuss it, it, it becomes, you know, a focus of therapy or conversation or, or, or some habit changing that you might be, you know, kind of you know, trying to pursue. And this is why it's so important to, in, in, to, to involve yourself with the therapy after the integration work is probably more important than the compound. And, mm-hmm. and when you look at those studies like Roland Griffiths and, and, and a number of these other sort of, you know, uh, trials, their protocols, are, are therapy loaded and upfront loaded. And then you, you do your, you know, your macro dose or your trip experience and you're, you're followed up by therapy and that's how you're going to get long-term reinforcement and change. And so, yeah, you're seeing now with, you know, in some cases beyond five years of, of lasting effects. Um, and we don't see this with drugs. We don't see this kind of, you know, single exposure or just a few exposures of a compound leading to this kind of significant change. And so that's the big paradigm shift, right? Is that it's like the healing's right. inside of us, and the compound <laughs> is there to kind of, you know um, conjure it up, uh, and and the therapist is really the guide, and you know it just kind of changes the paradigm and the nature of how we think about you know, medical care. I want. I think that was a beautiful thing you said. The healing is inside of us, and I would like to come back to our breath for that.
thank you. Yeah, I um, have always thought, you know, in the animal kingdom, when an animal's injured, what do they do? First thing is look for a quiet, <laughs> safe place to lie down and heal. And um, something in our oversized brain keeps us active and searching and sometimes um, certainly not at peace. But I do think so many elements of healing and well-being are uh, really inside of us. Um, Ketan, can I ask, um, certainly a lot of focus on psilocybin. Is that more favored in terms of research and um, therapy than LSD is? Well, I mean, let's, let's just say if, if you had to put a, like a tiering to this, I mean, psilocybin is like, it's a great place to start um, mm -hmm. in terms of a compound. I mean, it's four to five hours at most. We're, we're starting to use now MDMA, which is or ecstasy in, in, in mm -hmm. therapy as well. LSD is very interesting. I mean, back in the 60s, 50s and 60s, I mean, people were using it for alcoholism. And it, you know, it's a right. little. It was part of the AA process, right? Yeah. Originally, founder yeah. of AA. I mean, <laughs> was like you know, so we were seeing it used. It was I mean, the eight-step program, right? It was uh, the seventh. It was, well, it's now known as a seven-step program. Eight, nine, but the eight-step step was to take LS, LSD. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, 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 we're laughing, but it's you know, I was surprised to learn that. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, it's it's very real. I mean, so we're going to see a return. I, I you know, people in the valley have been microdosing LSD for creativity, and I mean, mm -hmm. if you take a dose of LSD, it's a ten to twelve hour journey. I mean, you're you're you know, you just can't. It's not tenable for drink, you know, to be at work and doing this kind of stuff. But um, mm -hmm. you know, in microdose where it's subperceptual, there are there, there are some improvements. I mean, the data is going to start to come out. We don't have any great trials that have been conducted to say. Yeah, microdose LSD, and here's what happens. But it's going to happen, and, and I think we're going to get there. So, you know, again, part of my journey is really to try to find that data and mm. bring it. And out. I, I'd read somewhere about LSD that um, a number of the uh, Nobel Prize winners in math at Berkeley actually did LSD in order to uh, have their breakthrough um, seminal work that led to the Nobel Prize. Or the Fields Medal, in some cases. Yeah, I, I, I would think it's right probably this? more prevalent, and now explains why Berkeley has just opened a psychedelic center as of a week ago, right? <laughs> I mean, so. yeah. Yeah. yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, because it was able to, I think, I guess I read the explanation was it was able to give them um, a different way to look at something they've been staring at for a decade, and suddenly, you know, aha, you know, they had the aha moment and were able to say, okay. Here's how something connects in a different way. Yeah, you shift your perspective. And and I think the shifting in perspective doesn't just take form in, in solving some concrete problem or maybe a, a mathematical problem. It, it, it's a shift in perspective in the way you react to things or the way you see, you know, feel something. And mm -hmm. so that, that's, that's the really cool thing about it is that you can go into, uh, you know, five different trips and have five different outcomes. Um, again, based on what your intent is, what's maybe at the surface of what do you're you, trying to solve. Do you think that half of we'll call it north america over the next decade will have tried um something beyond um weed marijuana or cbd half <laughs> i really <laughs> hope so <laughs> <laughs> very optimistic but, 10 years neil did you say yeah I, I don't i don't actually know what the penetration rate is for for marijuana even though i see you know a store everywhere in seattle now mm -hmm. Yeah, and again, recreational use is one thing, and medicinal or you know therapeutic is completely different. But um, you know, again, I, I, when we had our pain clinics, uh, you know, a third were using cannabis, um, you know, mm -hmm. for, for 
So yeah, I think the idea of, of a, a large section of the population, um, you know, trying at least something as, you know, on, on, the, on the introductory side is like psilocybin, very plausible. I, I think that's going to happen. And it's going to happen in the, in the form of, uh, you know, people getting more accepting of it through media. Um, there's so well, many we're pro- seeing cities accept it, right? Portland, Denver, yeah. Ann Arbor the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, Decriminalization. This is legal yeah. now. Decriminalizing yeah. nature is uh, is a movement, and it's 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 falling. Right, the, 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 the cities aren't going to you know criminalize it; they don't want to, uh, and for good measure. You you said a couple really interesting things to me about psilocybin that got me to sit up just as much as Roland's research. Um, one of them was, you know, which which part of the world is is my altered reality? Is it the one I'm living every day, or is it the one when I've had psilocybin? Because when I'm in psilocybin, I'm more clear than the altered reality I'm living every day. Could you, do you mind kind of jumping us into that? Yeah, you know, it's, um, it was, it's, it's a recurring theme that's happened on a few uh, experiences for me where, and again, this is my experience, so, you know, I can't speak for everybody, but it was, it was very interesting to come to a conclusion, or at least my personal conclusion, that in, in those states, you're, you're really open. You're, you're not in front of yourself. You're not trying to sort of control the environment. You're, you're feeling, you're, you're connected. And to me, it was really kind of this kind of moment where I, I started to ask, you know, is this actually the altered state or what I've been living my life, the, the altered state? And, hmm. you know, it's, it's really interesting, right? Like you, you come out of, of a trip experience and you always have this afterglow. Oh, it certainly you, makes you wonder right? Yeah. <laughs> when, when, when I hear you talk about it. Well, it's, it's you know, we, we're distracted. Uh, we've got a thousand things coming at us every day. Right, we've right. Got, uh, you know, probably poorest sleep we've ever had as a society in, you know, millennia. So you've got all these things happening. You know, how are you at your best? And and it's really interesting when your mind is completely unchained and untethered. Uh, what you're experiencing there is like you're highly connected. You're really, really, you know, um, you know, you're seeing things in a really different way. You're shifting your perspective. You, is that the altered state? I mean, and so that's kind of the, you know, the kind of question that kind of comes up over and over again when, when I uh, get into the, an experience like that. Um, the, you, you also talked a little bit about, um, th- this was just fun and funny for me because I had never really thought about dosing or size or any of these things about how I should talk to you sometime when you've had five grams um, when there's no more ego. Uh, and I, you know, I didn't realize, obviously, you know, something can be stronger um, when you have it. But, or that seems intuitively obvious, but I have no idea how to break any of that down or think about it. Or I wonder if you might um, illuminate <laughs> us and our audience a little bit about this. Yeah, I think anybody who's used this, these these kinds of compounds knows what I'm talking about, but this idea of self is very interesting. Once again, you, you're at the right dose, and as the doses escalate, you progressively lose yourself and in, in your construct of what self is. And so, you know, that analytical mind is gone. the 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 narrator of the story is is not narrating. I mean, you're 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 feeling, you're being, you're present, and this is that ineffabil- ineffability thing, you know, that we always talk about. It's really hard to describe, but you know, sometimes you're in this kind of transitory state where you're actually, you know, having a conversation with yourself, um, or you're having a conversation with maybe a, a younger self, and it's very real uh, in that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this ego death or the loss of self or the you know dissolution of self, you're going to hear it in different ways from different people, but it's it's a very profound thing because it. It's literally you getting out of your own way, and now somebody 
if you're having a conversation or you're, you're exploring a thought or you're exploring a feeling, it's, it's really raw. It's real. It's true. And, uh, you know, that's, that's that moment when therapy can actually happen, right? Cause mm-hmm. you've taken it all of you, you've left, you've left your skin sleeve at the door and you've, and you're just there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is the mycelia connecting you with the world. Huh? You got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Connection is there for sure. Yeah. I'm so appreciative of just getting a chance to learn and um, hear from your brain and <laughs> maybe the the less of you or less ego portion of you, or I don't know. I, I appreciate the way you're showing up and sharing with us. Um, Absolutely. And talking about feeling and not just thinking, which is what we spend a lot of time doing. Yeah. And I also appreciate it, Kevin, too, that, you know, um, the recognition that the healing and nourishing elements are in us. And really there's a, there are many pathways, but uh, uh, many ways to unlock that and get in touch with it. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, we're going to see uh, evolution and innovation even in even that. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you're there's a whole camp of, of, of psychedelic therapists who believe that the, the mind is self-healing. It's going to it's going to do what it needs to do. Just leave the person alone. Let them sail. Right. And, and then there's this other camp that's like we can direct and we can bring attention to some problem areas or f- problem uh, you know, zones that they want to sort of address while the mind is open. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, it's very divided. It's a very heated conversation sometimes in a room and you're having uh, you know, two, two different camps. But I think there's going to be some innovation in this uh, in terms of uh, being able to go in with intent to heal a very specific problem. And, and it's really funny because the shaman have been doing this for thousands of years, right? In ayahuasca ceremonies, the shaman is involved in your... Uh, healing process, perhaps even taking uh, ayahuasca, uh, yeah. which is a brew in, in the Amazon. But the, the person's there exploring your problem with you while you're in the state, while they're in the state somewhat. And, you know, these these sessions can last 10, 12 hours, but you come out of it with a very profound change. And people will always tell you that, you know, ayahuasca is the, is the bigger heavy hitter. You save that one for later. <laughs> you you work your way up. <laughs> Dip your toe first. And- no, you know, it, it, was, it was, you know, the, the, will sound a little strange maybe, but, you know, I got a chance to meet Joe Tafo as well, the lead researcher on ayahuasca. Mm, cool. Um, and, you know, I got a chance to go hear him speak essentially, right? Um, and uh, one of the things he said that was really interesting is there are so many ways to achieve the really interesting state. And he started listing Mm-hmm. Um, you know, holotropic breathing, uh, meditation, right? Um, ayahuasca, psilocybin, uh, EMDR, like just, he just went down this massive list and he, he said there are like 20 different ways to achieve a state that will allow you to set aside a little more of your ego and find a little more peace. And it's a question of finding the right one for you in order to, um, be able to connect to that. And I, I'd done some of the holotropic breathing stuff with going to a Wim Hof seminar and, you know, jumping in, um, uh, to really huh? freaking cold ice water. Very powerful stuff. <laughs> yeah. Holotropic breathing is a very powerful way to induce a non-ordinary state of consciousness or an altered state. So, you know, again, it, it's not illegal. It's, it's completely accessible. It's something you can learn. It's something you can do. Um, so it's, it's, it's there, yeah, but it's, sit on the floor against a wall. Here's our disclaimer, um, from our attorney. If you do the holotropic breathing, yeah, lying down is good. or lay down or lay down <laughs> with your head elevated a little bit. Yeah. 
Oh, you're right. I mean, we're going to see, um, I think, a return to these other. I mean, I always say there's a great technology. We've had it for thousands of years. It's called mindfulness meditation. Let's let's get that going again. Right. I mean, it's technology mm -hmm. that works. It's been in development for many years. It's got no patent on it. You know, it's <laughs> right. we, need, we need Eugene to start working on that. Right. Well, and it's, it's being shorn of the whatever religious trappings that may have um, right. turned some people away. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So becoming a, a sort of real secular therapeutic practice that people can engage in. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Kathleen, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thank you for having me and exploring this. This is, again, like I said, this is for me, returning back to that, those mystical experiences and religious states that, you know, those things that I was exploring in high school, that, that's the circle, right? This is the full circle return. And, and the tech side is just, you know, let's go and learn more about all of this and, and mm -hmm. have, have really great stories to, and, and, you know, really objective stories to tell. Chris, can we end with the bell? Absolutely. <laughs>